was not the beginning. There are neither beginnings nor endings to the turning of the wheel of time. But it was a beginning. Hello and welcome everyone to The Wind Was a Beginning. This is a podcast about Robert Jordan's The Wheel of Time. This is Season 3, Episode 4, Weddings, Weddings, and More Weddings. and glad to have you with us again this week. My name is Justin, and of course you know that uh, Stephen is here with me. Stephen, say hello to everybody. Hello, everybody. Oh man, how you doing this week? I'm doing good. Uh, I'm excited to get to do this again. Uh, it's always a pleasure to get to sit down and talk about these books. I just love them so much, and uh, especially we're getting into some stuff. I uh, you know, there's just stuff well, I'm excited about. Yeah, you, you you told me before we hit the big red record button that uh, I'm probably going to be doing most of the talking tonight because uh, you don't want to spoil anything. <laughs> yeah, I will do my best, uh, listeners, to avoid spoiling things. But there is a lot that happens in these chapters tonight that have uh, there's a well, there's a lot of stuff that happens here. That you won't really fully understand till you're well on into the series. Well, the good news is, is by the time we get there, I will have forgotten. <laughs> so I, I can't speak for um, all the listeners that are that are with us, but I will probably forget by the time we get there. So don't worry about me. <laughs> um. Well, there are a few things that I know of that aren't fully revealed uh, here, but hinted at. So uh, I guess we'll yeah. both have to be a little bit careful. But uh, I'm, I'm ready. I'm ready for the challenge. I'm ready for the task of, uh, I guess, uh, seeing what I can weasel out of you without actually weaseling anything out of you. <laughs> so. But if you're ready, I say, why don't we just go ahead and dive into it this week? I'm ready. Let's go. All right. Well, listeners, we are in chapters seven through nine of The Dragon Reborn. So if you have not read those yet, or maybe if you have the audiobook, listen to them, or however you um, uh, take in this story, I encourage you to go and do that. Uh, we'll uh, wait for you, and, or, well, we won't wait for you, but you can hit the pause button. It'll be like we waited for you. Uh, either way, we'll be right here ready to continue uh, our discussion when you get back. So we're going to kick it right off with Chapter 7, The Way Out of the Mountains. Perrin and company descend out of the mountains of mist, following signs carefully laid by land. Though he wants to resist Moraine, Perrin finds it impossible to do so. Soon they arrive in the foothills of Gildan, entering once again into the lands of men. So honestly, not a whole lot that happens in this chapter. Yeah, 
uh, I don't know. I think there is some stuff happening I here, mean, but it, 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 there's stuff happening, but it's you know, I don't I don't know how much I see any of this really driving the story moving forward. But who knows? I could be completely wrong. There are some interesting things, though. I think that are at least worth mentioning. Um, I was really intrigued by Lan's guiding signs, how he was leading <laughs> them along. I just thought that was kind of cool how, you know, it could be, you know, a couple of sticks laid a certain way or, you know, a couple of two or three leaves on another, uh, another plant that, you know, aren't supposed to be there. Something just different things that he's able to do or that he does to guide them along the way to direct their path. And apparently Moraine knows every one of them. Yeah, it really does show uh, just how uh, well-oiled the machine of Lan and Moraine is. Like, they have been doing this so long together that they know each other to this degree. You know, it's almost... Second nature to her, I'm sure, at this point, knowing all these different symbols and signs that he leaves for her. I I don't think it would be a a spoiler, and we may have already been told this, but how long have uh, Moraine and Lan been working together? Um, I would actually have to look that up, because that's New Spring. Yeah, well, let's see. It's... We, we we might say less than 20 years because Moraine was still in the tower when uh when when the the dragon was born on the slopes of Dragon Mount. We know that. Yeah. But more than 10 years? So they have been working together for rough roughly since, since just about the time that uh roughly 20 years. Not quite 20, um, but okay. basi- basically they have been working together uh, in some form or fashion, basically since right after Rand was born. Okay, so it's, it, I say it's shortly after, you know, she had yeah. heard the foretelling that the dragon had been, had been reborn yeah. on the slopes of Dragon Mountain. Okay, uh, so yeah, that's a good, good little while to, to be working together and to know uh, to know each other so well. Um, and yet there's still, um, there's still these moments between them. Like when she brings up the, the name of, uh, Morel. <laughs> now, um, correct me if I'm wrong. We learned about that arrangement in the last book, right? Uh, yes, yeah. we did. Okay. And if I'm remembering the arrangement was when, if, and when Moraine dies, her bond of land will pass to that green sister, at least for a time. <laughs> yeah. And of course, Lan is having none of it. I just, I thought it was, you know, neat to have that brought up again. Of course, you know, Perrin is curious, but nobody is going to talk <laughs> um, anything about that. So, Lan's not happy about it. Yeah, and, and it's this... It's this moment that kind of adds a little bit of levity to Moraine's character here. Like, the fact that she's picking at him and jabbing at him, it it reminds us that she is actually a human. She's not just 
the Gandalf stand-in. Right. Like she's not just a thing. She's actually a person. Yeah. And I actually did like that, that, you know, she's she's kind of teasing him a little bit. Yeah. But maybe not the best idea. Because <laughs> Lan is definitely having none of this. Yeah, well, he's not one to appreciate teasing in any form, yeah, really. Yeah, but, but this is a really sensitive subject for him, as we know from when yeah. they discussed it in the previous book. Uh, he yeah. He's not uh, particularly happy with this arrangement, and I guess I don't blame him in some way. Um, I don't know a whole lot about it, but it seems like it's a um, not a great thing. Definitely not a thing he would expect. Because it, the passing of the bond, like she is talking about, one, for Lan, he chose to become her warder because they had a joint mission and cause, and he felt uh, compelled to aid her in that cause. He did not sign up to then be just booted off to some random green. Yeah. You know, if, in, in Lan's mind, if he's not doing the work he's doing with Moraine, he has another job he should be doing. Right, right. And this and we've gets gotten, in the way of that. Yeah, we've gotten into that before <laughs> about um, certain things in, in Land's character Yeah, that uh, come up. But I think, you know, there you talk about there not being a lot in this chapter. I think this chapter actually does a good bit to humanize Moraine. Okay. Uh, just in these little moments, like this one with Morel. And then the one we get directly after this oh my with goodness. everyone fishing. Yeah. <laughs> uh, now I will say this: I think Moraine is cheating. You think you 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 think she's cheating? Yeah. Uh, well, you know, there was a a part of me that at least for a few minutes thought maybe this is just some hidden talent, you know, from yeah. before she was, you know, in the tower. Uh, training in the tower, all of that. But then I remembered, first of all, Moraine was raised in the noble houses of Kyrian. Yeah. So she probably wasn't going out doing a lot of fishing by hand. Um, <laughs> if she was doing any kind of fishing at all. Yeah. And uh, then just the, the sheer circumstances of it. I mean, I, I kind of feel like I know Perrin is, knows what he's talking about. So yeah. the fact that, you know, she catches two more fish even larger than the first one where Perrin said there probably won't be any. Yeah, I think she's cheating. Well, too. <laughs> Moraine, you know how we've talked before about different uh, channelers being exceptionally strong in like this element or that element. Like yeah. we talked in just in the last episode about Rand being particularly strong in spirit. Uh, Moraine is strong in water. Uh, if you pay attention to a lot of the things that she does, the stuff that she does using water, such as the illusion magic that she does and everything mm -hmm. like that, where she makes herself grow to huge size, the sinking of the barge, uh, oh, yeah, Moraine yeah. is very strong when it comes to the use of the one power in water, Okay, which with that strength also comes skill. So I think she's she's channeling the water and basically hooking the fish using the water they're swimming in. <laughs> uh, so the fish don't stand a chance. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, either way, there there was going to be a, a a decent meal that night. Yeah. Uh, and and Moraine helped at least a little bit. Yeah. Uh, she didn't help. Think, 
she didn't help very much after that. No, I think this is also part of Moraine trying to regain control. Because with everything that happened with Rand, and Perrin has been getting more and more uh, strong-willed, mm-hmm. and less and less, the you know, they're, they've been together long enough at this point that the shock and the awe of, oh, she's a nice eye, has worn off. <laughs> yeah, and more yeah. And more, more and more, he is questioning her, he is upright stand, standing outright up to her at times. And I think this whole little chapter, this journey, it little by little is her reassuming leadership and control. Well, and that's exactly uh, what happens. Yeah. Because it gets to the point where even though, you know, Perrin, Perrin said, you know, it's, it's when he and loyal are cleaning the fish that, you know, he thought Moraine should help with since she caught them. He's telling himself, you know, I'm not going to, I forget the exact wording, but basically I'm not going to be at her every beck and call. I'm not going to jump when she says jump. And it's kind of what happens slowly, but surely I, I, you know, at first I think, you know, he would, he would try to resist and then he just kind of gets caught up in it. Um, And doing pretty much anything she wants him to do. Now I did have a question about that. Mm-hmm. And, and Perrin actually brings it up, and he dismisses it himself. Moraine dismisses it as well. But please tell me there's there's nothing going on with the power in no, all of this. She, it's just the force is, of it's just the force of Moraine's character, right? Well, there's something that Jordan is doing here um, that he likes to do, uh, and this is probably one of the first times we've really gotten to see it. We saw it a little very in the very beginning. Back in the two rivers, um, it's the play. Uh, it's the gender roles, and it's how he, he's playing with the fact of basically Moraine is uh, using her just being a woman, and is basically okay. Getting she's doing exactly like the good wives of Edmund Field <laughs> do to the to the. Uh, the town council. I got you. Like, yeah. She, she is r- r- pulling the strings. She's making things work in such a way uh, to get Perrin to do what she wants just okay. by being who she is. Uh, and Jordan loves to do this playing because he likes to flip it on its head. Yeah. In this world, in the Wheel of Time, the positions of power nine times out of ten are going to be filled by women. Uh, it's so true. it's a very different world than the one we're used to, and he likes to play with this, especially with poor Perrin. <laughs> um, yeah. The man who constantly is like, well, Rand understands women, and Matt understands women. Uh, so this is a, a, another case of that, of him not understanding what's happening or why it's happening, but uh, but he, he's going along and doing what she wants, even though yeah. he doesn't really understand why he's doing it. <laughs> well, uh, you know... Might 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 be for for the good of of everything that you know. Just don't don't rock the boat. Just go along with it. And uh, yeah, I mean he's he's not done rocking the boat though. He's gonna kind of get yeah. a little bit of his backbone back. Yeah, I don't think he'll ever you know slink back to the submissive like yes, I said I yeah yes Moraine yeah. that we saw in book one. 
But he is going to take, you know, he's stepping back into a role here, letting her take charge, which is probably for the better right now, because she does have a lot more world experience than him. For sure. Even though he has more now than he ever thought he would. (laughs) But, uh, you know, she still has a lot more experience on him. Right. uh, In some things. Right. Other than that, I don't think we had anything else in that chapter unless there was something you wanted to bring up as, no, I think that... as they head out of the mountains into the foothills of Gildan. Yep. I think we're ready to, to move on. I, well, actually, there was I was listening earlier today, and I guess it might be worth mentioning that um, the wolves are still there. Oh. And and Perrin, Perrin is, is, is constantly aware of that, but also... You know, he, he mentioned several times something about wanting to get somewhere that was more populated because the wolves wouldn't, or at least he thought the wolves wouldn't come near. So I thought that that's, I think that's worth mentioning. Well, um, yeah, he has had that experience before. Right. Wolves don't like cities. Right. Uh, when he's in a city, they're not close by. What's happening right now is, and he's not communicating with them, so he has no idea why, but the will, the wolves... Uh, some of the same packs that helped them fighting against the Trollocs are continuing to follow along, basically providing him an escort through the forest right now. And he doesn't like it, so he wants the city to get away from them. Yeah, I'll say this. I think Perrin is making a big mistake in what he's doing right now. And here's why. He is letting his stubbornness to avoid the wolves be a detriment to their mission. Because here's the thing. Lan is a great tracker. He's doing a great job. Right. But Perrin, if he would use the wolves right here, they could know exactly where Rand is and where he's going. That's true. He did it. That's how they found, like, all the way to uh, Kyrian when they met back up with Rand. Uh He used the wolves to trace the Trollocs and everything like that. That's right. Uh so he's done it before, but he's refusing to do that here. Yeah. Uh, when they could, you know, well, it's we, just... Yeah, I, I, we did take into account what he experienced in the previous chapter or last week's episode when he almost went complete wolf. Yeah. You, you got to understand, you know, where he's coming from. But I, I, I don't disagree with you. I, I, you know, I think that's a, that's a, a wise thought. Um it's usually Matt we expect not to make the wise decisions, but yeah, Matt's not here. It's just so just Perrin for all his talk of like making sure you use the right tool for this and that, and he has this entire set of tools that he's just trying to shove down a hole. Yeah, <laughs> uh, yeah. and it 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 irks me <laughs> to see him do it. Uh, you know, because I really like Perrin. Oh, for and, sure. Uh, you know when he's dealing. Dealing with the wolves, I am very conflicted about how Perrin does does things as a yeah. character. I I, but that's I'm not Perrin, so right. I would right. react differently. So yeah. Well, let's get on into the village of Jara in chapter eight. Company arrives in the village of Jara only to find that it has seen quite the flurry of of activity, weddings galore some very strange acting white cloaks, and it's all Moraine needs to know that Rand has been there. But it's an unexpected meeting. 
that leaves Perrin feeling the most uneasy at the end of the day. So the first thing I picked up on as we came into the village is this odor that Perrin smells. What's he smelling? <laughs> Rafo. Ah, okay. Okay. Read on and find out. You know, I, I had <laughs> I had a thought, but I'm 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 questioning it now because you know, one thought that I had is, you know, there have been white cloaks in the village just one day before. We know of a character that has a very foul smell to Perrin that we've recently seen with White Cloaks. That, of course, being Pad and Fane. Oh. So I thought that could be a possibility. But then at the same time, I feel like Perrin would know that smell. Yeah. Because he spent think- so much time tracking him before. Yeah, I think that's a smell he would recognize almost instantly. Yeah, so uh, so that was a thought that I had, but as I thought about it some more, I, I think it has to be something else. Yeah, so. and I would love to tell you and the listeners, but <laughs> I can't. Right. Well, it's like you said. We we'll we'll find out. We'll keep yep. reading, and we'll find out. Um. <laughs> Well, what's what's been going on in this little village? We find out when we get to the inn, Harolyn's Leap. What's been going on? Weddings, weddings, and more weddings. And a few more weddings. You want weddings. a husband? You want a wife? <laughs> Step right up! Uh, everybody look under your chairs. <laughs> Uh, oh, did you smile at me? Let's get married. <laughs> oh man, that's the way that like the way that Simeon describes it. That's what feels yep. like going on. Like two people just look at each other and it's like, oh, we're gonna get married. Yep, uh, right here, right now. Not even waiting yeah. about. It. I even mentioned like a, a, a the widow and the the old man who both swore that they would never get married again. And, yeah. Uh, Two widows getting married when they said neither one would. Yeah. Uh, it all started with a young woman marrying uh, the blacksmith, I think it was. Yeah. That was old enough to be her own father. Right. Uh, not not a woman old enough to speak the betrothal remained unmarried. Yeah. Not within a mile in any direction. So it's been quite the... Uh, Quite the few days. Yeah, and it definitely definitely shows as we start to talk to some of these villagers, like, everybody is, like, half asleep. Yeah. Yawning. Yeah, (laughs) for sure. Like, when they first walk into the inn, most of them don't even notice the Ogier walking in, who apparently, you know, they believe are just children's tales. Yeah. But... Can can we uh, stop for a second and realize how much, how similar, for the first, this is the first time we've seen it, since we left the two rivers, but this really reminds me, the whole village here really reminds me a lot of Edmondsfield. I, I felt the same way. Yeah, it's a remote little village. Yeah. Like, we're back to Trollocs and Ogier being fables and child stories. Right. Uh, so it's obviously, you know, this little remote village in the wood, out in the middle of the woods at the base of these mountains. So it's, 
It's quaint, yeah. I guess, is the word I'm looking for. I definitely, I definitely felt the same way. I was getting the same kind of vibes uh, yeah. when they came into the village. There's only the one inn. Yeah. Um, you know, there. I believe it was mentioned something about uh, the the young girl that that married the blacksmith didn't even want to have a proper wait, and that sounds exactly yeah. like something somebody in Emmonsfield would say. Yeah, um, it felt very much like Emmonsfield, and it's the first time we've really had that because you know, yeah, basically from the time we left Berlon, everything became a lot more metropolitan. Yeah, even when see, we've. Well, let's see, we've been to Camelin. Uh I guess Faldara was a little bit... I mean, it wasn't like a village, but I don't guess it was quite on the scale of Camelin. No, I mean, Faldara uh, is basically a key... It's a like stronghold, a yeah. Yeah. And but then uh, and then there was Falma. Tarvalin, we've been to Tarvalin. Yeah. Falma uh, is a pretty decent size. It's it's I would say it's probably like bear lawn sized. Yeah, I would yeah. I would think. We're not giving huge detail on that. Uh but you know, Kyrian is gigantic. Yeah, we've been to Kyrian. And, uh so but we hadn't really been you know, even when Rand and Matt were on the road from Whitebridge to Camelin, the cities they were the villages and stuff were very much more like culturally in sync yeah. with everything else around them. Yeah. You know, they came when was just right there. It was basically like suburbs almost that they were going through as opposed to these remote villages that like only get a traveler every now and then and like have never seen an ogier and yeah. So, it's just a different type of culture that they're inter- introduced to again here. Yeah. Uh that's not all that's been uh it's not all that's been happening in uh, Jara, though. Apparently, there've been some white cloaks in town, which, which in and of itself, is not strange, because it sounds yeah. like they're not far from the border of Amadicia, which so, is the Whitehold. Yeah, capital, that's, that's where the, the white cloak stronghold is. So it's not, uh, you know, it's not uncommon for them to come through. But these were acting very strange. Yeah, and let's see. I want to read a, a, some excerpts. Um, um, you know, they had asked, it was, you know, Master Herod mentioned, the, the, the innkeeper mentioned something about the White Cloaks being thankful that, you know, uh, Loyal was not a White Cloak and, um, Moraine questioned Simeon on that a little bit later. Uh, let's see, uh, 1.3 of them up and announced that they weren't children of the light anymore. Uh, took off their cloaks and just rolled rode away. Um, another one said they were off to hunt the Horn of Valir. Another said they should be hunting the dragon. Um, that one said he was going to Almuth Plain when he left. Some of them started saying things to the women in the streets, things they shouldn't have been saying and grabbing at them. Um, women were screaming and children yelling at the ones bothering the women. I never saw such commotion. And then... Um, even a, a a couple of them up and said that the entire village was full of dark friends and were prepared to burn it down, uh, and that just about came to a skirmish in the streets of this small village. I, I don't like the white cloaks. Um, I think I've made that very clear, but this is certainly strange indeed. All of this happening. Um. 
but I guess we do we we do find out why, right? Right. Yeah. Go ahead and hop into that if yeah. you want. Well, because, you know, and this is one of those areas where, you know, kind of see Perrin's backbone stiffen again a little bit. When they when they get by themselves, he asks Simeon, basically ask him about Ran. And yeah. Simeon remembers him quite well. He played the flute for all of the weddings the day before. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And ran out in the middle of the night screaming about somebody chasing him and wanting to kill him. Um, yeah. Pied Piper Rand is definitely making quite the uh, impression. <laughs> yeah. And, but then when Perrin goes to Moraine and, you know, even though he wasn't supposed to say anything, goes to Moraine, he's like, yeah, Rand's been here. And she's all, yeah, I know. <laughs> yeah. Uh, she said, you know, when the, the weddings themselves were the sign and then the White Cloaks confirmed it. And apparently it all has to do with Rand being the strongest Tavarin that anyone has seen since the Age of Legends. Yep. Even Arter Hawkwing was not so strongly. And, and it's Lan, I think, that mentions that, you know, there were pe- people were in the same room with, with Hawkwing. Um, you know, they would be intending to lie, but tell the truth anyway. Different things like that just happening yeah. around him. And Rand is even stronger than Hawkwing was. Oh, yeah, by a pretty good margin, too. Yeah. Um, and it is even said, we talked about this at the towards the end of the last book. Uh, I think Varen was the one who said it. But basically, there was a... People said that Arger Hawkwing was strong enough to Varen that if you were in the room with him, you could almost feel the pattern shaping itself to his will. Yeah. Uh, and so that was him, and now we've got, uh, you know, Rand here is significantly more Tavirin than that. Um, you know, Land makes the point, like like you said, people that wanted to lie, telling the truth. Uh, I think he says, like, people that wouldn't have normally agreed to something suddenly agreed or changed their minds. Yeah. Uh, you know, there was, it's a convoluted... Uh, twisting of the pattern but it is not always necessarily always going to act in the same way right right uh moraine says there's not enough known about it really but and i think it wouldn't go ahead i was gonna say i think that kind of gets brought up because because perrin is afraid that um you know he'll he'll leave a trail of weddings all the way to tear yeah. So that anybody could find him, but I, Moraine's not so convinced that it would work exactly like that. Yeah. Um, and again, nobody really knows anything about somebody so strongly to Viren. Yeah. Because it hasn't been seen in yeah thousands and, of years. And I will say this: I don't. Th- I think she's being a little facetious. Um, okay. Because I don't think there's actually, as far as I know, there's no like written record. Of oh these people in the Age of Legends were super Tavirin. <laughs> I think she's just using that kind of like how people say you know not since you know the pyramids were built or something right. has there been you know she's using the Age of Legends as a really as an infinitely long time ago yeah uh, so it's basically what she might as well be saying is 
We don't know of anybody who's ever been this severe. <laughs> say, no, nobody, nobody in living memory knows anything about it. Nobody for quite some time has known yeah. has known that much about it. So yeah, um, <clears throat> how about how about Land's reaction to finding out that Simeon knows that Moraine is Aes Sedai? Yeah, so <laughs> pretty sure. Like, when Perrin lets slip that the guy knows, like, you can almost see it, like, Lan is ready to go make himself, make a, make a guy disappear. Say, Ran is, <laughs> Lan is ready to unalive him. Yeah. Easily. Uh, and, and, and here's the thing. When, you know, Perrin picks up on that, and when he confronts them about it, Moraine basically says... You know, I can't always promise that I will be able to spare somebody. Yeah. You know, she 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 wants she she's willing to spare uh Simeon, but she can't always promise that that'll be the case. Yeah, and it and she's not even willing to spare him right off the bat. Like they have to think about it for a yeah, minute. Yeah. There's that pause <laughs> <laughs> and they're they're contemplating it. And so that really shows you I guess this almost we've talked about it before zealotry, um, but we it's this this idea that with Moraine and Land they are so dedicated to their mission, right? That it is ex- it, they will go to whatever extremes they deem necessary to see what they need done happen. Yeah, uh, even if that means killing a completely innocent, altogether good person. Yeah. For no more reason than the fact that he looked at them and understood something that he shouldn't have. Like, it's not that they're willing to kill bad people. They're willing to kill anybody that gets in the way because they've deemed their mission to be so vital to the survival of the world that even a good person's life is worth the cost yeah. to them. Yeah. So that shows you just their level of dedication is pretty intense. Yeah. There's a term for that, but I can't think of what it is. Um Maybe it'll come to me at some point. Um, yeah. Well, let's move on to the reason that um, Simeon approached... He approached Perrin, uh, suspecting that Moraine was Aes Sedai, and Perrin basically con- somehow confirmed it for him, uh, because Simeon has a brother, uh, his name is Gnome, and he's very sick. I can tell you why Simeon did it. Okay. Tiberius. Ah, okay. <laughs> how did I how, how did I not know you were about to say that? <laughs> <laughs> we keep forgetting. It's easy to forget, but Perrin is just not as Tiberian as Rand, but he is very Tiberian. Well, we need to hold on to that thought because that's going to come up in the next chapter. Yeah. Um, but let, let's talk about this here. Uh, Simeon's brother, Gnome. Yeah. Um, his sickness is, well, this is not the sickness. He's a wolf brother. Yeah. And unfortunately, he has been taken over completely by the wolf. So, and, and even when it comes to the point that Moraine, you know, kind of reaches into him to see if there's anything that can be healed. You know, she tells him there's there's really nothing left of of your brother. 
So, I have thoughts. You have thoughts. You 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 don't you. Okay, you're gonna make me look up her exact wording, aren't you? Uh, if you want to, but <laughs> I ahead. think Moraine is talking a big game here. And she's acting like she knows all this stuff. And I think she is drastically out of her depth. She is passing along information as it is, as if it is truth. And I don't think she necessarily knows what she's talking about. Mm. She well, you wants know, to be, in, and I think she, it, I don't think it comes from her bluffing. I think she really thinks she knows exactly what she's talking about. I just don't know. Okay. That she really has the, like, there's no amount of delving with the one power that would necessarily show her the thing she's claiming here. I think she is looking at him, seeing what is happening, and based off the knowledge that she does have, which we'll talk about in the next chapter, yeah. uh, she is allowing that to shape what she sees here and what she thinks has happened. Okay. But I don't know that it's necessarily, we don't need to necessarily take Moraine's opinion here as the truth. It's just, it's, it's her truth. It's, it's her truth. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, I'm, I'm really curious, you know, uh, take, taking what Moraine said and, you know, Perrin obviously has fears even before this, of the same thing happening to him. So, you know, what I'm curious of is is what makes the difference for a wolf brother, whether or not he gets, you know, fully taken over or not. Because I'm, I'm thinking about Elias, who, you know, pretty much has this whole wolf brother thing figured out. He, he, he keeps his humanity. He? he runs with the wolves full time, but... He still, there's still that semblance of his humanity there yeah. that, that we don't see in, in Gnome. And for a few minutes, we didn't see in Perrin. You know, he was completely, you know, taken over in that regard. I don't think, at least from my perspective, we didn't see that with Elias. Yeah. And I just, I wonder, you know, it's like, Elias was living as a wolf, but in full knowledge of what he was doing. Right? Yeah. It's not like he's he's lost himself, uh, as this appears to be the case. Because that looks like what's happened with, with poor Gnome is he's lost himself. He's, he's, he's wolf in all but physical form. But that's, that's the I... way, that's the way I see it, uh... I want to say things, and I'm trying to think of how to say it without... There's so much in this scene. Oh, goodness. Um, what can I say? I think... Shoot. I don't know that I can say much anything. Well, we'll just... I know... We'll just keep reading and find out. Yeah, I, I want so badly to answer here. Um... And to really talk, because I have some distinct theories about what's happening here, well, but we'll just, it's all informed by stuff that's later. Yeah, so. we'll just we'll just keep reading and find out. Uh, one other thing I wanted to mention is this little bit of a a final scene between Simeon and Perrin, where it seems to be you know the White Cloaks were 
obviously looking for Paranibara, a blacksmith uh, with golden eyes. Right, I believe yep. that was the description that they gave. Well, um, here is Heron, whose name Simeon has heard. Obviously, his eyes are unmistakable, and Lan calls him Blacksmith. Yeah. And it at least seems to me that Simeon knows exactly who he's talking to. Yeah, I he's, think Simeon knows, probably does from the... I think that's part of what drew him to Perrin. Yeah. And allowed him to open up is because, you know... I'm not going to lie. Those eyes. I'm not going to lie. It makes me a little uneasy. Really? It, it does. I mean, we know... He knows that the White Cloaks are looking for Perrin. And I know he has no strong love for the White Cloaks, but... You know, things being what they are, uh, it just makes me uneasy that he knows. See, I I tend to not have that feeling because I see Simeon and how he reacts with Perrin at the end here and the choice that he makes in letting Gnome go and the way in which Simeon and, and Perrin talk. And like before Perrin really even finishes fleshing out the idea of what he's asking Simeon to do for him going forward. Simeon has already figured it out, and he's like, "Yes," because he knows that other people. He's figured it out, and Simeon is complacent now, or complicit in that he is going to help protect Perrin. So I see Simeon as a genuinely good man. Aren't you the uh, one who those... told me before not to trust anybody, though? Oh, you shouldn't. <laughs> you definitely shouldn't. But I trust Simeon. You trust Simeon, but I, I shouldn't. Okay. Uh, I, you know, I... I, I want, probably shouldn't either. You really shouldn't trust anybody I, in these books. That's the but, thing uh, is, I, I want to trust him. I, I agree with yeah. you. I think he's a good man. It just makes me a little bit uneasy Yeah, that he knows so much. Speaking of things that make me uneasy, or made me uneasy, going back a little bit earlier in the chapter, uh, we don't get a description of the innkeeper. <laughs> so I don't know whether he's skinny or plump, and we know we shouldn't trust a skinny innkeeper. Right. So that's got me a little uneasy as well. Yeah. If nothing else, he's a sleepy innkeeper. So <laughs> uh, can, can we know. trust sleepy innkeepers? <laughs> well, they're they're a little slower on the uptake, so uh, hopefully <laughs> they're at least uh, a little. Slower to put two and two together, I guess, maybe. Okay. <laughs> uh, the weddings have really done them in. Yeah. Uh, but it's, uh, you know, the whole thing here is very interesting, what's going on yeah. uh, with Gnome um, and choosing to let him run free. I will say this. Uh, oh, I can say this. Okay. I can say one thing about Gnome and Perrin here. Okay. And it's the... I'll just leave this little seed in your mind. If Gnome was 100% wolf at this point, then theoretically, Perrin should have been able to feel him and communicate with him just like he would with the wolves. And we don't see that here. Right. All he gets are, you know, feelings and you know, desires 
but not really communication. Yeah. Yeah. I will say that whole scene was really, um, you know, it, it was it was difficult. Uh, seeing a man caged up like that, but also, you know, um, you know, if he's, you know, completely lost to the wolf, still seeing him caged up like that, and I love that Perrin decides to set him free. Yeah, uh, it was a, it was a, you know, a, a touching moment, I think. Yeah, and then when Simeon's worried about uh, the innkeeper finding out, he's like, "Well, let him." Locks the door yeah. back. He's like, well, let him let him figure that out. <laughs> yeah. And it, it plays uh, into the whole werewolf thing again, because it's like people already like there was already a rumor going around that, that he had, when he bit the uh, basically the town's wisdom. Yeah. That he actually turned into a wolf. Yeah. And so now he's going to magic like it's basically they're they're creating a story here because now people are going to assume he like magicked himself out of the cage and. He actually turned into a wolf or something. You know, it's very uh, mythical here. What's hap- What what they're happening? What is happening here? Yeah. <laughs> so. so let's move on to chapter nine, um, and this is the chapter that you can't really say a whole lot. <laughs> no. So we, we might not be. We might not have a whole lot to say here, but I know there's a couple of things to bring up. Uh, let's go ahead and talk about chapter nine. Wolf dreams. Bothered by what he witnessed with Gnome, Perrin goes to Moraine for answers, but she really doesn't have many to give. Returning to his room and falling asleep, he dreams quite disturbing dreams and awakens to find himself covered in blood. Meanwhile, somewhere in the country, Ran tests his ability to use the power and finds that he will not be easy meat. Um, so yeah, we start out Perrin you know, he goes to Moraine looking for answers, which maybe is more of that kind of, you know, we were talking about it in chapter seven about her kind of regaining control. Uh, you maybe see a little bit of that here because now he, he really has no choice. He has to go for her to her for answers. She really doesn't have any answers to give. No. Um, similar to what they said about Taviran, um, really. There's not really anything known about what Perrin does, about Wolf Brothers. Yeah, um, what little she has is information from one book that she found back in the last book when she was yeah, at the a, house. A, a fragment of a book at that. Yeah, <laughs> and even it, even if she'd had the book in its completion, the fragment that she had basically alluded to the fact that even in the Age of Legends, they didn't really understand it. <laughs> it was a thing, but they didn't really understand why or what it was even yeah. back then. And they had all, you know, the age of legends was the age of legends. <laughs> you know, it's supposed if, to be these. <laughs> yeah, if anybody was going to understand it, you'd think they would. But yeah, but this is something, if I'm remembering, this is something that goes back to the beginning of time, does it not? Well, it goes back at least to a different uh, age. And possibly dates further back even to like another turning of the wheel. Okay. So well, that's because yeah, there's not really a, I guess not really a beginning of time. Yeah. Um, uh, it is something that is both old and new at the same time as the way the wolves think of it. Yeah, it's older than the Age of Legends. I think we 
Yes. Yeah. Uh, and it's a thing, and I think we're kind of hitting on this fact now that we've seen Elias, we know about Perrin, we've now seen Gnome. Yeah. It is something that is coming again. Right. Uh, and this is a, a thing that the lot farther we get into the book series, we're going to see stuff like this um, as we go closer and closer to Tarman Gaiden. Uh, old things, lost things coming back. Uh, okay. and this, the wolf bond is one of those things. It is a thing that pr- it is most likely predate channeling. Hmm. Uh, by a significant amount. Okay. Um, so we're talking, uh, if you wanted to set it in a time frame that would make sense for us modern, we're talking like uh, what people would f- refer to as like caveman times yeah. kind yeah. of thing. Uh, very old, very, very, primalistic. Yeah. Um, very ancient. Yeah. Um, the next thing that, that gets talked about, and I know you can't say anything about, or I, I assume you can't say anything about this, but Moraine mentions that wolves live partly in this world and partly in a world of dreams. And, mm-hmm. you know, I, you know, kind of with parents, like uh, what a world of dreams, what does that mean? Um, so I don't know. I guess we can't really say anything else about that right now. So, um, or can we? We can say I, there is a little I can say here. So, Moraine is hinting at the fact that there is like the there's more to dreams than simply dreaming. Uh, there are regular dreams, and then there are dreams that touch on something more. Uh, that and I Sedai with the gift of dreaming tend to interact with that something more. And we're we're basically led to remember Egwene, yeah, and how she can sometimes have dreams that are more substantial, that interact like almost like prophecy, yeah, um, in her dreams. So it's touching on that. Um, it's also mentioned many many times, like how they have to shield their dreams, mm-hmm. uh, and how basic basically. Uh, the Dark One was able to come in, Balsamon was able to come in and shift and control their dreams. So they're they're more substantial than simply this like made up world. Um so that there is an element here. We just haven't been given an in depth explanation right. at this point. Well, I'm I'm glad you mentioned Balsamon because I was thinking that, you know, some of the dreams we've seen with him, you know, you, you mentioned something more and they definitely had that feel to them mm-hmm. um you know though there was the one where i think rand was in a maze or something made from thorns and he pricked his hand on one and he woke up bleeding yeah so that that's interesting to to say the least um the other thing they talk about is taviran because of course yep. taviran's going to come up and we yep. we kind of already touched on this point, you know. We sometimes forget that Perrin is Taviran, and apparently, so did Moraine. Yeah. I mean, she basically says that if you know Rand was so strongly Taviran that she sort of neglected that there were two others that came out of Emmons Field, born 
around the same time in the same village and, and she kind of you know basically had forgotten about about Perrin and Matt as far as their severe nature I, I don't know maybe she hadn't forgotten but uh, definitely had not made it a priority yeah and you know we've seen some we see a lot with severe nature and Rand. Especially because the last two books, we spent the majority of our time in Rand's head. Right. This is the first um, time we're spending any significant amount of time with Perrin, isn't it? Yeah, we got some with Perrin in the last book. We got a little and bit, we got, but... And we got some with him in the first one because, you know, when they were separated out. Yeah. Uh, but this is the first time we're spending significant amounts of time right. in his POV. Yeah. Um, you know, we, we are seeing some of parents to be in nature um we haven't really seen any of it from matt yet um so that would be interesting to see but yeah it's while perrin is not as strong as rand in being taviran i would venture to say he's probably on par with uh arthur hawkwing okay wow okay yeah um, and that's the other thing with Taviran, and we'll get information on this later, but it's not spoiling anything for me to tell you. The pattern and the effects of a Taviran nature can swell and diminish over time. The pattern dictates as it will. Um, so, so just because someone is incredibly Taviran and pulling on the pattern in one moment doesn't necessarily mean he will be from... The next moment, the amount of time there that he is Taviran can shift and change um, until the pattern's done with you. Interesting. But, uh, so, because that's the thing, for the most part, especially at this point, the Taviran nature is basically just this force that's acting on them and is acting on other people. It's not something that they are consciously like manipulating or using to their advantage. Mm -hmm. uh, so it's just kind of this, the wheel doing its thing and they're just swept up in it. Yeah. It's just interesting. And I think it really going forward in the rest of this book, I think listeners need to really watch for things and kind of, I want you to be looking for when you think maybe that is parents to be in nature affecting situations because there's going to be more incidents. You know, at, as at, we go. at this point, I feel like we should be trained to do that already. Yeah. <laughs> but I, every time something happens, I'm kind of just kind of, I guess maybe I'm so absorbed in the story. I'm not thinking about it so much, but uh, we do see that happening. Well, let's, um, let's move on to dreams. Okay. Uh, Perrin has some, some fairly, well, one dream that's rather disturbing one that's maybe more confusing, and then there's a running theme between all of it. The first part is um, he comes across this man who, uh, I don't know how much detail we need to give, but the, the the long and short of it is he comes along across this man who basically gets his skin ripped off. Yeah. And, you know, Perrin runs from that, and then comes across a beautiful black-haired woman clothed in white and silver who tells him that he'll, he'll ruin things 
uh, definitely is not plant pleased to see him. Um, uh, I'm assu- we're assume I guess we would be safe to assume that that is Lanfear, and he is seeing her in his dreams, and it's not the first time. Um, yeah. The running theme, however, through this dream is Perrin keeps getting warnings from a wolf, and not just any wolf, a very particular wolf um, that we've met before by the name of Hopper. Yep. And I'm, I'm hoping maybe you can give us a quick refresher on... Hopper, because I I know we've met him, but I don't know that I remember the details. Obviously, you know, uh, Hopper is dead. Yeah, Hopper is the reason that Perrin has a white cloak bounty on his head. Okay. Uh, Hopper is the wolf that was defending Perrin and Egwene and was cut down by the white cloaks that sent Perrin okay. into that frenzy where he killed one of the white cloaks. Okay. He right, was so, one of Elias's pack. Yeah. Uh, that and he was one of he was one of the first wolves that Perrin made actual contact with. Okay. Okay. And so now Hopper apparently is talking to him in his dreams. Yeah. So um as for the rest of this, I, I don't really know what I make of it. Um again, that whole thought part with the man getting his skin ripped off is uh, that's the kind of thing horror movies are made of. And, you know, seeing Lanfear in your dreams and her seemingly recognizing you in your dreams is, um, that's also the thing horror movies are made of. Uh, and then, you know, it all ends with, with Hopper, you know, waking Perrin up by lunging at him as if he's going to bite him on the throat. Perrin wakes up, um... His skin is unbroken, yep. but he's covered in blood. Uh, the, the same blood of the, that man, he assumes, or yeah. he believes. So, uh, what can you not tell us? There's a lot I can't tell you, <laughs> but I do have questions to maybe get y'all thinking. Okay. Uh, where do you think Perrin is in this dream? Because... Uh, yeah, it's not like he's in one place and then runs to another. For some reason, he's not able to run like you normally would. Right. Because um, he tries to leave after what happens to the man and instead basically just has to run down the hallways. Because uh, he's not able to do that thing where he like flickers to another place. Um, so the place where the man gets his skin removed and the place where Lanfear are at are the same building, basically. Okay. So where do you think this is? I, I I really don't have a clue. I didn't pay too much attention to set dressing. Um, you know, I I did notice a lack of large redstone columns. Right. So it's so not, not the, the stone of it's, tears. It's at least it's not the heart of the stone. Um, I mean, I, I suppose it could be somewhere else, but I, I really doubt that. I don't know, you know, where else it could be though. Um. I'd have to go back and look more specifically at, you know, details of where they're at, but yeah, um, I might have to do that and see if I can come up with an answer, but right now I don't have one. Yeah. 
So I think he has stumbled into a place that is incredibly dangerous to be. Uh, I mean, it's pretty evident from what happens to the other man, but uh, I think it's even more dangerous than that. Mm. Um, somewhere he really shouldn't be. <laughs> um, mm, there are things happening here. So uh, many things. Well, maybe uh, maybe we just need to put a pin in it. And... Yeah, that's going to be a long pin. Uh, um, so let's... I'm trying to think if there's anything else I can contribute to the conversation about what's happening here. Um, do you think this is actually Hopper, or do you think that this is, like, Perrin's own mind creating uh, a vision of Hopper? It's hard to say. I mean, my my question is, you know, is, you know, why all of a sudden is Hopper appearing in Perrin's dream? You know, that that would be the big question, because I don't think we've really heard his name maybe since book one. Yeah. And I know that's really not that long in terms of the amount of time that's passed, but it, it's been a while. So for him to suddenly show up again is at, at best, you know, curious and intriguing. Um, But I mean, I don't know. I mean, I don't know. You know, is this just a dream that parents having, or is there something more to it? You know, it, it's something that I guess will remain a mystery for now. I will say this. Because you're not going to tell me. <laughs> I will say this much. If it is Hopper, in my mind, the reason that he now chooses this time to reach out to Perrin is twofold. One. From the minute he starts dreaming, the wolves are trying to warn him. Right. And he's still trying to push them away. And two, I think it, 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 Hopper showing up here, if it is Hopper, shows the desperate nature of the wolves here to get Perrin out of this mm. place that he has gotten himself. Okay. Uh, the level of danger that he has put himself in here, according to the wolves merits Hopper interceding. Yeah, they said it was worse than a Neverborn. Or th worse than all the Neverborn. Yeah. So that's it. Uh, quick question. Uh, when Perrin had his dreams before the Trollocs attacked, mm -hmm. there was a wolf giving him warning then, but we weren't given a name, were we? No, we just told it was a wolf. wolves giving okay. warning. There wasn't necessarily okay. uh, like the one that like broke through at the end and told him that the the twisted ones were there. Yeah. We didn't see that wasn't told to us as being Hopper. Okay. It was just the wolves. Yeah, I didn't I didn't think so, but I mean it, it's curious at, at the very least, I guess. But yeah. I feel like if it was Perrin would have maybe there would have been some mention of it maybe. Probably. At least at least yeah. briefly, <laughs> but Yeah. Um so well, let's uh real quickly cuz uh we're getting kind of late. Uh, which I don't, there's not a whole lot to say, I guess, about Rand. Uh, but no. for the first time this book, well, if, you, if you're not counting the prologue, for the first time this book, we're uh, getting out of Perrin's head and getting into someone else's. We take a quick jump over to Rand's point of view. Uh, he's yeah. somewhere out in the country, huddled up under some trees, uh, trying to lure this large black dog to come near 
And when he does, he ran does something <laughs> to this dog. Um, it was Definitely something involves the power. It was something of the power. Yeah. It was something that it seems that Rand had been trying to do and hadn't had full success up until this point. But this time it works, and all of a sudden Rand is convinced, you know, he's a force to be reckoned with. You know, you want to hunt me, I'll hunt you. I'm no easy meat, <laughs> was his yeah. What was the way he put it there at the end. Um, yeah, he, he has come to the conclusion that he has figured out a weapon. You know, he's been struggling ever since the end of the last book, in part because he lost his weapon at the end. Like, Tam's sword was destroyed in the last battle with Balzaman. And so, you know, Rand here, he's definitely being hunted. He uh, is. You know, he, he wasn't just being mad and... Uh, when he fled the the village, he is actively being hunted, uh, and so hunted by what, what or who? That's the question. <laughs> yeah, so uh, they've got dogs after him, but yeah. uh, who all you know? Who is sending them? Who is chasing him? There's so many options for who it could be. Yeah, uh, you, you know, we get the idea that Rand here at least thinks it's Balzaman. Because he's like, one of us must die. Sure. You know, he's sure. basically, I think in Rand's head, he has come to the conclusion that it must be Balzaman. Well, of course, he's the one that has been, you know, terrorizing Rand's life for months now. Yeah. Yep. Um, and he, he just won't die. No. Nope. Um, uh, whatever this weapon is, it's, it's formidable. Yeah. Uh, it got the job done. Uh, that dog just kind of disappeared. Yeah, it's like a dis disintegration beam uh, or something. Maybe, maybe it's just a magic trick. He just made the dog disappear. Yeah. He's going to appear, you know, I don't Down know. Down the road. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Or some kind of some kind of teleportation device. <laughs> yeah. The dog's going to show up in, I don't know, Saldea. I don't know. <laughs> yeah. Who knows? Yeah, Who we're knows? not given any real indication here. Other than Rand seems pleased that he's able to pull it off. Right. Uh, but we know that from what he says here, that is still not always the case. He still, says he's still, yeah. still, you know, sometimes he'll reach out and it's like there's nothing there. And then other times it's all he can do to control it when he has it. It's, That's right. He still doesn't have control. He's just figured out a trick. <laughs> and uh, well, other thing that I guess is worth mentioning here is that he he's he's convinced that Tyr holds the answers that he's looking for. Yeah. Um, I even have this quote. Um, I have it written down. I have to reach Tyr. I'll find out there. If I am the dragon, there'll be an end to it. And if I am not, if it's all a lie, there will be an end to that also. Or end to that too. So he is, you know, obviously he, I guess, has, well, he's been dreaming about the Stone of Tyr. He's been dreaming about Kalimdor. Obviously, he has been hearing about the prophecies. Yeah, but here's my question for you. Where has he been hearing about the prophecies? That's a good question. I don't know. <laughs> and he's been dreaming about 
the Stone of Tear, and we just got done with Moraine in the last episode talking about how dreams can be influenced, they can be forced. Yeah. Do we think that Rand was naturally dreaming of the Stone of Tear in Kalimdor, or do we think that perhaps someone is forcing those dreams on Rand? Oh, you're 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 thinking of a serious black in the Department of Mysteries mm-hmm. kind of thing here. Okay, yep. uh, I hadn't really thought about that, but I, I guess it's definitely a possibility. Um, I, really, the thing that I thought more of is you know we we know that we know that Tear is involved in the prophecies of the dragon the stone and Kalendor. What kept coming back to my mind is what Rand or what Moraine had already told him about prophecy. Yeah. That you can't always take it at face value. Now, I believe, you know, when they were talking about it after the fact that she seems to think that Tyr and Kalendor and all of that is important, uh, an important part of it, but um you know, yeah, she never argues that it's not part of the prophecies. But actively her, her thing is, trying to fulfill a prophecy yeah. is a very tricky thing indeed. <laughs> yeah, you've got that right. You can say that again. Um, but that's where Rand is, and that's where we're left off. And, and you know, we kind of figured he was heading to Tyr. Uh, Moraine figured he was heading to Tyr, and when she finds out he's gone to the east, um, she knows that that's where he's headed. And... Now Rand is um, using the power to uh, kill animals. Uh, that's yeah. not a good. That's not a good place to be. No, not for <laughs> a man who wondered about the men, his mental stability. Yeah. Um, so Rand, I'm worried about you. Yeah, I, I really think we am. should be. <laughs> yeah, I think we should be too. I think we've been kind of conditioned through these first nine chapters, through Perrin's point of view. To be a little bit worried about Rand, because he's worried about Rand. Yeah. And as as he should be. I will say, and, and this, I, I will get into final thoughts. I, I have enjoyed so much spending so much time in Perrin's point of view. Um, I think I've mentioned before that Perrin is one of my favorite characters. So getting to spend all this time in his head, I've, I've greatly enjoyed that. And I'm sad to to see it end because uh, I believe in the next chapter we're switching to another point of view. And the other thing is, you know, I mentioned, you know, some of my uneasiness. And I'm not going to get resolutions to that <laughs> right away. Nope. So I'm going to yeah, be I'm going to be worried about Perrin for for a while. Yeah, because uh, we are about to jump to a different perspective. Yeah. Uh, so, but, so. you know. I'm sure we'll come back to Perrin eventually. Oh, I'm, I'm, I hope so. <laughs> uh, we're not far enough in for him to be gone yet. Yeah. So, um, yeah, but I've, I've thoroughly enjoyed these, these chapters and getting into Perrin's head. What about you? Any final thoughts? Um, no, I, I agree with you a hundred percent. Uh, you know, it's nice to get Perrin's perspective. I like Perrin chapters. Um, all the way through the series, I'm a fan of Perrin. Uh, I, I am not, Perrin is not my favorite character, but I have a lot of love for Perrin. 
Um, I have some other characters that are more my favorites than him. Uh, but I do have a lot of respect for him. Although I do sometimes... He can be a little too cautious for my like sometimes. Mm. <laughs> I, I, I can see that. Uh, he, yeah, that's all I can say, but I, yeah. I do love parent chapters. They are fun. Yeah, uh, I've, I've enjoyed and, it, so. And they only get better. <laughs> that's good to hear. Yeah. Uh, well, I guess that's going to do it for us this week. So we are so glad that you've joined us once again as we continue discussing this wonderful series of books, this wonderful story. Uh, I'm excited every week to come and talk about it. I know Stephen is as well. Uh, I look forward to it. Like every week when we finish an episode, I, I can't wait to sit down the next day and start reading the next chapters. That's where we are at this point. So I I'm, I'm hope that you're enjoying the ride as well, those of you that are listening and maybe reading along with us, whether you're reading for the first time or reading for the hundredth time. However many times you've read it, I hope you're enjoying the ride with us. So thank you so much for being here. Uh, just a quick reminder, you can find new episodes on Tuesdays uh, in various podcast platforms. We would encourage you to subscribe to make sure that you get the new episodes when they are released. And if it wouldn't be too much trouble, go ahead and leave us a rating, uh, whatever you think we're worth. We do like five stars. Um, so we hope you'll give us that, but leave us a rating, leave us a review. Uh, that would be great, very helpful as well. Interact with us on social media, Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, YouTube, TikTok, send us an email, all of that information, uh, those handles and addresses are in our show notes. So you can find those there. What are we talking about next week, Stephen? So next week we will hop on with a brand new perspective as we cover chapters 10 through 12. All right. And as always, of course, that is our intent. Sometimes we don't get that, get all the way through. <laughs> yeah. But um, our, go ahead and read chapters 10 through 12 for next week. I'm looking forward to it. And I hope that you are as well. Uh, with that, I guess that will do it for us this evening. So we'll go ahead and sign off. Uh, maybe it's the morning where you're listening or the afternoon, but it's the evening when we're recording. Um, so we'll go ahead and sign off for this week and hope you have a fantastic rest of your week. So long, everybody. 